Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview a dear friend, uh, Michal Fox, an academic researching the evolution of cognition, originally from Israel. She's active, actually very active, in progressive circles around the issues of Israel-Palestine uh, relations or Palestinian struggle for uh, liberation. Uh, Michal and I actually met, uh, what is it, like about two years ago? Maybe even three. Three, could be, yes. Uh, and I think it was at a workshop at Tufts where they brought Israeli, uh, Arab Israelis or Palestinian Israelis and um, Jewish Israelis to talk about um, uh, the conflict and relations between a Palestinian inside of Israel um, with the Jewish community. And I think Michal was, was, uh, was, had interesting opinions that I even found fascinating as a Palestinian uh, with Israeli citizenship. And that's why I thought she would be a fascinating person to talk to today. Um, <laughs> Michal also comes from an interesting background and has traveled a lot. Um, so Michal, uh, let's start out with you, maybe if you could, um, tell us more about your background, what do you do, how did you grow up, and how that kind of influenced um, your work today. Sure. So hi, first of all, everyone. Um, like Anwar said, I grew up in Israel in a Jewish family, and in the city of Rehovot, which is very mainstream city, uh, very Jewish. I hardly to almost never met Palestinian people, except for, I'm embarrassed to say that construction workers who you were always, you know, warned to be careful of. So that's, that's most of my exposure to Palestinian people throughout my upbringing and most of my adult life, even um, when I did, I did a volunteer year and I thought I was a very good citizen. I, I lived in the city of Nazareth elite, Upper Nazareth, which is close to Nazareth, but, um, but it's the Jewish part. And I worked with immigrants from, from Russia. I postponed my military service for one year to do that. And then I served my time in the Air Force and kind of did the average path that most of my friends or relatives have done, which is finish your military service, go take the long trip either to India or to South America. I went to South America and traveled for a few months and then came back and started my undergraduate studies where Actually, when I reflect back, and I recently saw a lady that who that studied with me in my undergraduate studies in Jerusalem in biology, and I think she was the first Palestinian non-construction worker that I've seen. We weren't friends, and I didn't know her very well, but uh, she was there, and I was quite fascinated, but still never had close interactions with her, and. After doing my undergrad in biology and then a master's in zoology in Tel Aviv University, I had the opportunity to go and do a PhD in Northern Ireland on cognitive science of religion. And 
as people might obviously know, Northern Ireland is a fascinating place in terms of conflict and different versions of why the conflict was, but at least they are post-conflict. And that was already eye-opening to me, both in the sense of being out of Israel and having the opportunity to entertain some of my thoughts more freely and less, less uh, with less judgment or with less comments about that maybe my opinions are naive, that I don't mind if I had a Palestinian neighbor as much as I was concerned about having an Orthodox Jewish neighbor that told me if I can use my bicycle on the Saturday or I can't, I didn't care what people did in their own home. And I had those ideas about, I don't have a problem having a Palestinian neighbor, but I was always categorized as, as naive. And I guess I wasn't as strong uh, and opinionated to, to explore those thoughts. But should I go on now or do you, or do you want? Oh yeah, keep going. Okay. This is fascinating. Uh, and I am I'm very curious about, you know, your trip in Northern Ireland and uh, Ireland. I know I keep saying Ireland, <laughs> Northern yeah. Ireland. And then, um, you know, what happened next? Sure. So actually while I was doing my PhD in Northern Ireland and in Belfast at Queen's University, I was doing my field work in South Africa and I was working with a lot of Zulu communities in the townships around Durban city and in rural communities in the Drakensberg mountains. And for me, that was even more eye-opening because the populations I worked with, especially rural, I just loved it. I felt so at home, but for real. I mean, I just, if I wasn't spoiled and wanted my running water and my gym close to the house and nice supermarket, I would move and live there. As many of my friends there said, oh, why don't you just buy some land and build a little hut here? And I said, I would love to, but I'm, I'm spoiled. And But other than that, I just absolutely loved it. And I'm still in good relationships with a lot of people from the communities, especially the Mweni community, shout out to you. And so what I realized is that when I would go back to the city, Peter Meritzburg, where I live, none of my friends wanted to come with me and even see the area. Some of them were really afraid. Some would tell me, oh, how are you driving there? A woman by yourself, they'll kill you for 10 cents. And I thought, you know, that is so far from reality that I'm, I, I was kind of shocked of my experience there and the way people in the city that I knew that never been there see that place. Um, actually, one time when I was at the village, and I was never afraid at the village, that's, that's kind of my seminal point. I was never afraid at the village, and I left my, would leave my computer at the main uh, space near the kitchen and I would go and sleep at my hut and go out to the bathroom and come back in and one time I came and some of my local friends said oh there are people there are people here that are from your area in the world mm -hmm. and I was really curious I thought oh really and I came and there were four young men who were speaking Arabic and being an Arabic major in school 
can't claim to know Arabic very well right now. <laughs> I kind of could recognize that the Arabic they speak is a bit more familiar to me than, than Arabic I, I hear sometimes on TV. And so I just asked them, where are they from? And they said, oh, we're from Jerusalem. And I kind of jumped and said, oh, wow, I'm from Israel too. And I was just, you know, in my head thinking, oh, why did I say Israel? Maybe they're not from, why did I say I'm from Israel too? Maybe that's not nice. Or, you know, I was just kind of mixed up in my own head. Um, but then I told them, oh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not from Jerusalem. I'm from Rehovot. And they said to me, oh, we're not exactly from Jerusalem. We're from Vadiara, but we tell people we're from Jerusalem because people don't know much about those areas. <laughs> a lovely time. I mean, I always brought food to cook with the people I worked with. And uh, those guys brought food and we all shared and we talked. And it was quite interesting because there were moments where I kind of was questioning myself. So I asked them what they're doing. What are they doing here? And they said that they live in Johannesburg and they're here on, they're living in a mosque and studying the Quran. And, you know, for a second, kind of a alarm light came on and I thought, are they extremists? And then at the same time, I thought, you know, my cousin, my cousins are religious Jewish people and they postponed their military service to go to a mechina, to a place where you can sit and study the Bible. Um, and, I, you know, they actually live in settlements, which is a whole other issue. Yeah. But I kind of thought, you know, if, if I don't consider my cousins as really extremists, these guys are, can be just, you know, interested in learning more about the Quran. But I constantly had to do this conversation in my own head. Um, and I remember at night, I went to bed, and then I wanted to go to the bathroom. And this, this weird, but not unfamiliar fear came on me, came, came into my head that and I, and I can't say that I was reflecting on it. It was so fast, but looking at it, it was, oh, wow, they know I'm a Jewish Israeli and this whole growing up with this idea of Jews always need to be careful because you might be kidnapped to ask for exchange with prisoners. Oh, I don't know what. I was afraid to get out of my hut to go to the bathroom, but I really needed to go to the bathroom. And I thought, okay, Michal, you're being ridiculous. And there's probably nothing's gonna happen to you. But at the same time, I was kind of, something was stopping me and I just had to tell myself, you know, you have to go and see that nothing happens to you and start collecting these kinds of positive experiences. Because if you just stay with that idea and don't try, then that, that kind of monster of idea is just gonna stay there or grow. Um, and that, I think, was kind of a moment when I started realizing that all the stuff that people in Peter Maritzburg were thinking about, people in Weni, was just the same as people I know, and up to a certain point myself, thinking about what would happen to me if I ever went to the West Bank. I've never been to the West Bank, let alone Gaza. And, and the whole idea of, oh, if you're Jewish and you step your foot in the West Bank, you're going to be lynched. And 
that kind of idea, I thought looking at it from the way I look at the South Africans thinking about so white South African thinking about rural Drakensberg, I thought, okay, I need to start rethinking kind of my, my opinions about going to the West Bank and realizing that there is that fear that I've been, been taught my whole life. And I need to change it. I need to go to the West Bank and have experiences and meet people and see how amazing it is. Because I'm sure it's just as amazing as going to the Drakensberg Mountains. And after that, you know, every visit I came to Israel, I always went with organizations like Breaking the Silence and Iramim to just go there and look, meet people and see the villages and see the differences between settlements and uh, unrecognized Palestinian villages and see the wall that's been built and separating neighborhoods. I just wanted to learn so much more of all the stuff that you know, I wasted 30 years of my life not paying attention to. That's fascinating that you had to travel um, to different countries, like all the way to South Africa and Northern Ireland to kind of see the issues or kind of related to the issues at home, right? Um, and I think that's, that's a, a very fascinating transformational experience um, that not a lot of people get to go through it. And I think that's, a, a, that's something to kind of be uh, like something to contemplate more and kind of understand more. So this brings me to the question of how do you tie these experiences to you know, your intellectual life, your activism? So you talked about visiting villages in the West Bank, but how are you trying to engage more um, with activism to kind of promote the, or kind of to understand and also help convey the, the, the Palestinian uh, struggle and kind of their issues? So just one more point related to, to the past is that I do feel uh, responsible, I guess, for not, exploring more, even before having the more international experiences. And I, I acknowledge that it made it much easier, but I feel like I should have done it even when it wasn't easy. Even when I was in Israel and if I had never left and I did my PhD, if I had done my PhD and postdocs and stayed in Israel, I would like to think that at some point I would, um, muster the courage and the self-confidence to, to defend some more liberal opinions in Israel. And I, and I can just say that since then, I was always looking for, quotes my people in Israel. I was looking for very liberal Israeli, not just Jews, but I was looking actually for Israeli Jews liberal because I, I didn't know so many of them. And I don't think there are actually many of them. Um, but since then, I've met a lot of people who feel comfortable as Israeli citizens to question the basic premises of Israel. For example, I'm currently living in the US and continuing my academic career in the US. And I'm always fascinated, especially by Jewish people, because Jewish Americans who live here 
and are very proud of the American democracy and how it's holding together and how there's a separation of church and state, but they would still hold to that idea that no, Israel has to be a Jewish state for Jews to be safe there. And I think, well, does America have to be Christian for Christians to be safe here? I don't think so. And I don't think they think that. And I think they think that America should be Jewish for Jewish people to be safe here. They're trying to make it safe for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, should be without a double standard that should be applied to the situation in Israel, especially when, you know, 20% of the population at least are not Jewish, then we should all try to make it safe and comfortable for everyone. So that's just kind of putting it out there. In my, in my research, I've struggled with that a lot and I still struggle and my, I have a colleague who I come from cognitive science and I did uh, cognitive anthropology and cognitive psychology research. And I work with colleagues from uh, political science and we, we are working on cognitive science of nationalism. And I'm really trying to make sure that I do separate my activism from my academic um, research or my research questions because I do not want academic research to be driven by agenda, but the topics that I am interested in are very much driven by my experiences. So my PhD was studying the cognitive science of religion. And that was, you know, looking at religious systems from, a, from the psychological perspective, but, but more broadly than people think about the term religion. Because when people think about religion, they think, oh, you want to go and understand why religious people do what they do. And I think, well, you know, I don't think that it's such a clear cut. There's either you're religious or you're not religious. There's a lot of religious behaviors that are very continuous with behaviors we do not label as religious, like ritualized behavior. We see a lot of ritualized behavior in the religious domain. But we also see ritualized behavior in sports. If you think about basketball player before they throw their free throws, they each have their little idiosyncratic um, practice that they have to do other, otherwise something, you know, their luck is not gonna work. And these are all, from a, from a cognitive perspective, these are all similar processes of thinking. So somebody who's doing ritualized behavior in one domain it could be motivated by similar motivations for somebody who's doing it in sports or in uh, a youth movement or any other domains that are not religious. I think when we kind of extract the study of ritualized behavior from just religious studies, but rather to the whole human behavior, we learn more about human motivations and uh, what compels them to do certain things. And with my colleague in political science, we are trying, we are, we are looking at nationalistic behaviors and, and ideas from the same perspective. So people who are exhibiting some extreme nationalistic behaviors, they're not 
unique people necessarily. They don't have a different brain than other people. Uh, they don't have different potential to their brain necessarily from other people. I want to understand why they're doing it. And if we just look at the social facts, they're not enough to explain what they're doing. Um, so we are trying to add the cognitive perspective and looking at it from an evolutionary lens. So, you know, we can see nationalistic behaviors in other species that are not human. And people might think, oh, that's funny because they don't have nations. But it's because we labeled this thing as a nation. But if you just think about in-group, out-group, hierarchy within the group, those are all motivations that a lot of organisms have. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that, to understand the real motivations behind movements in the US, like let's make America great again. Does that mean let's make America great again for every American? <laughs> it's not really what that statement means. Um, so we can kind of apply similar ideas to nationalistic tendencies across communities, across countries. So, so I'm very much simplifying it, but that's where my interest in human behavior and human group dynamics is related to my research, mm -hmm. um, which is related and unrelated to my activism. My activism is informed by the fact that I don't see people as so different. I think if one thing I learned from the cognitive science of religion is that, yeah, religions look kind of different. People in Israel, Orthodox people wear black and have black hats and grow their beard and things like that. And people in Zulu communities might wear beads and red hats and cow skin leather skirts. But when we kind of look at the fact that they need to wear attire to signal commitment to their community, or that they um, invest a lot of resources into their ritualized behavior. For example, in Zulu communities, you would slaughter a cow for an event. Uh, and that is not a cheap thing to do. So that's a very costly signal to demonstrate to your community that you are a real member. We have a lot of those principles in common, even if on the surface they look different. And that's kind of what motivates me in, the, in my activism. Mm -hmm. And one more thing is that we need to, I think we need to also understand that human cognition shaped by, by long time of evolution, uh, is, is here to stay. We, are, we have certain cognitive mechanisms that prepare us to interact with the world, and they're very useful in certain circumstances, or else we, our species would not still be here and be very successful on the earth as far as you know, our numbers and our spread across the continents. But at the same time, those cognitive systems are not always adapted for modern life. They, they've been selected long time ago, and now they, they're dealing with new environments, with new cues, with, with new situations. 
And what I try to, it sounds a bit pessimistic, but what I, it's not actually, but what I'm trying to remember is that that cognition is not going away. So the fact that during a certain period of time, we see more nationalistic movement. And at another time, we see less nationalistic rhetoric. It's not because those people who exhibited it have really changed their mind. Um, the tendency is to divide groups and to look at others who might sound different than you or look different than you. Uh, those tendencies don't go away. They're very ingrained in the way we think. Our society and our constraints can make it more legitimate or less legitimate to practice it, but they can also calibrate us in the sense of who we see as a threat and who we don't see as a threat. Because just like language, I'll just say one more sentence. Just like language, we all have the capacity to learn language. But because I grew up in Israel in a Jewish family, my first language is Hebrew. And because you and Anwar grew up in Um al-Fahim and your family spoke Arabic, your first language is Arabic. But you and I had the same potential to learn either language. Um, we just happened to be exposed to different ones. And I think in the same way, seeing certain groups as a threat, uh, perceiving certain cues as a threat is part of the calibration that we go through. And if we understand that, yeah, people will look for cues for threat, but you can also control to some extent what kind of cues they're going to be exposed to at, at critical times of their development. So I hope I'm clear, but it, I'm kind of jumping between my academic and my activism, but that's how it is in my head, I guess. This is fascinating. Now, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, then this brings me to another question. I, I know you talked about your experience, your academic research, but what are other intellectual influences that kind of shape the way you think about your activism, about the way you understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about your position in the conflict um, or on the conflict? I know we talked a lot about, um, what's his name, Alan... Um, Right? Is that yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so there were lots of influences in, in throughout the time, and there still are. Uh, one big one is my PhD mentor, actually, Tom, who grew up in South Africa and left at a young age, at 20, and was in the U.S. and was very activist, active in terms of you know, recruiting money for Nelson Mandela because he was in prison those, uh, those years and um, challenging the system. And often actually with Tom, we talk about that I feel the urgency. Every time I see an olive tree being burnt or cut in the West Bank, it, it really physically hurts me because I think of my friend Njiwe in so in Zululand, in, in the Drakensberg, and I think if somebody came and burned Tenjiwa's cornfield, that's her livelihood. She doesn't have, um, you know, a bunch of savings in the bank to just, oh, okay, I'll just go buy corn. That's, that's her livelihood, and I kind of connect it to every olive tree that is cut is, makes me think, oh, this is urgent. I mean, I cannot have afford years and years of that happening. Uh, 
And sometimes when I talk to Tom and he says, you know, I had to wait 50 years for apartheid to, to end. And I think, wow, I don't think I can wait 50 years. It doesn't make sense to me. We learned so much from it. Why, why should we wait 50 years? Um, but then, yeah, like you, yeah, like you said, while, while I was in South Africa, I had a, one of my friends who was doing a yoga teacher training with me. And she was from Indian origin. And she invited me. I never heard of Ilan Pate actually before. And she invited me to hear him talk. He came to South Africa. And her parents and her were very aware of his book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And I was receptive, but, but uh, a bit hesitant. But I was very curious to hear what he had to say. And that was such a beautiful experience for me because um, I've read about him and I've seen how people, Israeli media talked about him and labeled him as all kinds of radical and anti-Israel. But when I listened to him talk, everything made so much sense to me. And even when some people in the audience at the end said more kind of, um, extreme thing they were like how long should we wait for israel to to give the palestinian right and rights and what when when is it okay to start doing some more violent actions and ilan Pape was so clear about that and he just said you know we haven't tried almost anything to even think that it's that it's justified to do anything um militarily or or aggressive towards Israel. We haven't even tried the peaceful protests. And uh, um, for example, BDS movement like worked with South Africa. And so I thought that was such a moderate opinion and so sensible. And since then I've actually acquired most of Ilan Pate's book. And I actually went to hear him in Boston talking and got him to sign one of them. So, uh, Usually I recommend Ilan Pepe's books to many people. So that's a lot of influence. And, um, and actually living in Boston and engaging with some more liberal community members there helped me start to find the people in Israel and in the US that think a bit more like me. It, it's very hard to find to find them, I found it. Um, but it feels very good because I always thought uh, that going to Israel would be very frustrating to be surrounded by almost no one who thinks like me. But seeing people at uh, the New Israel Fund, NIF, who are doing things like that through arts and hearing having the opportunity to meet people like Amira Haas, who's a journalist, and Noam Schuster Eliassi, who's a comedian. And they're all doing these activities that are pro-peace and so sensible that it just made me a bit more optimistic again. That, mm -hmm. you know, together we can still do it and maybe sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I think that brings up a great point, and you kept kind of mentioning that, but I think it's important to highlight it, the importance of building a community of people who think like you will believe the same way, because, um, you know, it can be challenging 
um, doing the work that we do and thinking about these issues. And that brings me to the question of what type of challenges have you faced uh, when you, you know, you had this new political awareness of the situation, consciousness, you developed a different understanding of the issues on the ground in Israel-Palestine. So did that come at a cost? How did that shape the relationship you have with your family members, um, with your colleagues? Did, did that create any tension or did it build new relationships? Um, and I, you know, kind of talking about the importance of community um, to help us navigate these things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely relate to that idea of community because it, it was and it's still a point of contention um, especially with my family that, you know, some of them lived in settlements and some still do. And that is so far from anything that I believe in. Um, but a friend, one friend in South Africa, actually, Mike, who was very activist against apartheid in South Africa, always said, you know, choose your battles and with your family, that's not where you want to do your battles because like he had with his family before and after they held the same opinion, although they kind of, they never held up to them about how they thought during apartheid. Now that it's easy that it's ended. And so for me, it's been, at first, there was a lot of accusations, some implicit, some explicit, that I've been brainwashed by my new, very liberal friends. And I found it both insulting in the sense that I was not, I have kind of my own opinions and I've not been brainwashed. I've actually worked hard to develop my own stance. But at the same time, I thought, you know, if we're throwing out this term of being brainwashed, uh, if anything, I've been brainwashed for years and years and years growing up in Israel to the extent that a taxi driver in Belfast once asked me where I was from, and I'm sure he thinks I'm crazy because it took, it took me so long to give him an answer. And so fast, all these things were going in my head. Oh, I don't know who he is. And now he knows where I live. And what if I tell him I'm from Israel? He's going to kidnap me. And so, and, and people, I think people not from Israel didn't even understand what I'm talking about. Why, why was it so hard for me to tell him where I was from? And I thought, you know, if, if we talk about brainwash, that's, that's how I felt. Um, at the same time, uh, one, one uh, seminal moment I had was when I was, I was actually in South Africa, but my family WhatsApp group was going on, and somebody shared one of those memes that said, um, dear God, this year you took away my favorite singer, and there was some name of a famous Israeli Jewish singer, and this year you took away my favorite composer and there was a name of some famous Jewish Israeli composer and on and on and then it said I just wanted to let you know that my favorite uh, Knesset member is Hanin Zuabi and I just read that and I got so red that my, my partner just looked at me he had no idea what I'm doing and it was in Hebrew so he did not understand and he said what what's going on you look like smoke is coming out of your ears and I said, yeah, just give me a moment. I need to, to chill before I decide what I respond to that. And I just, I had to really relax and then kind of sit and say, you know, A, I resent 
anyone in my family who calls for the death of somebody. Um, B, I actually listened to the interview of Hanin Zuabi that you are probably referring to. And despite not getting the chance to finish a full sentence in her interview, she actually made a lot of sense. And then I stretched it and I said, you know, if there's any Israeli parallel to something like Nelson Mandela, and I'm not necessarily thinking that Khalil Zawi is Nelson Mandela, but she's more of that than most Knesset members um, that I know of. And I said, you know, maybe you should listen to what she actually tried to say in that interview uh, before you say that stuff. And that, that was for me also a point of realization of how much struggle it's going to be in every daily life. If I lived in Israel and wanted to just have normal interactions with, with friends and families, I don't think I can tolerate jokes about Arabs or like, you know, using the term, the phrase Arab work to mean kind of crappy work or, um, I just, I, I felt like I'm not, I'm not going to be willing to tolerate it so much, but I also, it's hard for me to live in constant conflict. Um, so I kind of had to choose my battles, but at least to make sure that if a WhatsApp group I'm a member of, then yeah, I don't mind that people feel uncomfortable saying that kind of thing. So I would, I would kind of hold my tongue for a while, but if somebody pushes it, I will say, you know, this is unacceptable in the, in a family WhatsApp group or something like that. And it's not always easy and it's very unpopular as you might think. Um, so it, it, is, it is very refreshing to also have uh, friends who I know I, I don't have to worry about it. Or I can be myself and I can say what I really think about what's going on in Israel without worrying that somebody is going to take it as an offense on Jews in Israel or that I want them all to, I don't know, be thrown to the sea. I mean, I'm, I'm from a Jewish family. My family who lives in Israel are Jewish Israelis. I care about them and I want them to live happily, but I also care about you and your family. So I just, I find it very hard enough to, to engage with people like that. And one of my friends actually once accused me of, which I, I kind of wear with pride. He, he said, you know, you talk about the, the situation here in Israel too much with rationality and you, you kind of lost the emotion that's related to the situation. And it confused me for a second. And then I thought, well, who do you want to make decisions about this situation? People who are emotional? For people who are rational, I mean, who do you give uh, the right to make a be jury in, in the court in the US, the family of the victim or independent people who can think about it more in principle? So it is very difficult when you're accused of not being emotionally connected or not caring about people. And last thing I would say that very hard for me was um, I don't even remember the names of, of the Israeli operations or attacks on Gaza, but it was probably in the between 2010 or 2012. And 
a lot of my friends were having their first kids, their first babies. And so I was, I was talking about, you know, children in Gaza and how mothers in Gaza are mourning and suffering from losing their kids. And I was so shocked by young parents who didn't think that parent, young parents in Gaza have the same emotion or the same connections to their kids. As if, oh, they don't, they don't care about that. They care more about the cause. And I thought, who thinks that about any other human being, really? Um, so it's just kind of this, a lot of conversations that I have a hard time articulating sometimes, but it's very difficult uh, to see that place in front of your eyes. And so definitely having people who are more liberal and understand what I say without ha me having to qualify everything a hundred times is kind of a breath of fresh air often. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. I know how personal it is and frustrating can be when especially you know the people that you're upset with are people who are close to you, people that you love, right? They're people that um, you want to maintain a relationship with them, but also you don't want to be silent all the time. Absolutely. Because I do believe that there is a, there is a fine line between, you know, balance could be complacency, right? Um, and you don't want to fall into that, but you also don't want to lose the relationship that you have with your family members that you love dearly. Um, yeah. Which brings you to that question, which is the final thing, um, the final question I have for you. Um, what advice would you give Jewish, young Jewish activists uh, who are, or peace activists who are just now kind of realizing that everything that they've been taught um, was, um, you know, it wasn't the full reality or it was, uh, um, it, it was in, in ways one-sided and also not truthful. Uh, so what do you tell them? What kind of advice do you give to them uh, while they navigate, you know, first of all, it is, there is pain that comes with realizing that our truths are not really true, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, with challenging, after you do reconcile that with yourself, the challenges of the community that surrounds you as well. So what kind of advice do you give that, uh, do you give to these young Jewish activists who are now kind of coming to their political consciousness and having to deal with all these different kind of levels and layers of, um, uh, you know, of, of restrictions and limitations and challenges. Yeah. First of all, I hear you. It is tough. And something I read in a book, a sentence that was in the beginning of the book, I think it was actually a Steven Pinker book, Better Angels of Our Nature, about how, you know, the situation that we are in now, uh, this, this, uh, era is better for humans than it was before, but it doesn't just happen out of the blue. There were people who struggled in the past to give us a better starting point. And so I think that's a really important point to me to remember always that, you know, it, it's my job now to make sure that people like the people you're mentioning um, even have the opportunity to, to realize 
what's going on and to expose uh, that kind of those injustices and that clouding of information that they've been sheltered from or uh, bubbled in. And it's all of our responsibility to keep making things better for everyone in the next generation. So it's kind of like we don't have the right to despair and not do anything about it. Um, but, but certainly find people who think like you because even though you don't always want to just be surrounded by people who think like you and kind of reinforce each other, it's also very demoralizing and difficult to constantly talk to people who disagree with you. And you need that balance. You need that kind of support. Yeah, sometimes you think, oh, I don't need that, but we're humans, we're social, and we we want to feel also belong. So if we feel that every everyone around us is, um, you know, uh, excluding us because we're we're thinking differently, then fine, we don't have to cut ties, but also find a place where you can be yourself and have the opportunity to develop your own thoughts and maybe even be pushed by somebody who has even further liberal or radical ideas than yours, because that would kind of make you actually develop more rather than being dragged back by arguing with people who are more centrist than you or more right-wing than you, which doesn't push your own opinions and challenges you. I find that Ilan Pape, for example, in his writing did that to me. Kind of there are some terms that he used that I wasn't comfortable with, but I just wanted to keep reading because I thought, you know, he seems like I, there, most of the other stuff I read makes sense. So is it my discomfort when he uses the word ethnic cleansing? It sounds horrible um, to me then, but then kind of, you know, if I give him the benefit of the doubt on other domains, maybe I should keep reading and see why he's saying what he's saying. And that pushed, I'm not, that kind of helped me develop my thoughts further then keep arguing with people who, who are holding me back and I had to keep justified things that I think are basic, like equal rights. I don't feel like I really need to justify it. I, I think we do and I think we're not there. So politically we need to, but in terms of developing our own ideas, it's much more stimulating to talk to somebody who's you think is even more radical than you and start to entertain it because there's so many things that 10 years ago were not in the norm and now they are. So in 10 years, people will, the norm would shift and you want to be on the right side of, I know it's a cliche, but you do want to be in the right side of history and be part of who brought it and not who dragged us down kind of. Um, any final thoughts, Michal, before we end? Uh, no, I just think I'm very lucky to have met you in that uh, debate group. And that was a beginning of even more active part of my, my life. So thank you for holding this uh, podcast. And I'm looking forward to hear what other people have to say. Yeah, thank you, Michal, for talking to us today. And I want to thank our listeners for listening in. Um, I hope you have a fantastic day. And I will talk to you soon.